and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we have a great guest. This is going to be an interesting, dope show. We have Kenneth Kelly on the show with us. What's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Brother Bakari. I'm glad to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a couple of years since we've been together with Bishop Jakes. Yes, it has been. And, uh, you know, building wealth is something that we talk about on the show often. And I'm glad that we have somebody with your level of expertise. Uh, you know, we start each show the same way. And our listeners are very used to it. We like to start each of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And yours has spanned energy in corporate America to now being a bank CEO of minority-owned bank. Walk us through the arc of your career from the moment you left Auburn to your work now, both as CEO of First Independence Bank in Detroit, to now your work as an author helping black families understand the value of estate planning. Well, Bakari, it is one I can only tell you that I was not smart enough to plan out. and is But the grace of God that we sit where we are today. Um, but to your point, I started out in electrical engineering there at Auburn University and worked for Alabama Power Company. Got the opportunity, Bakari, to work across many facets of the business from marketing to corporate finance, human resources, supply chain, uh, just the many facets of the business. I got a chance to learn inside of the utility, worked at Georgia Power and also Southern Power where I was doing mergers and acquisitions. And so I will tell you that last role just before I retired out of Southern really taught me a lot because we work with every aspect of business deals when you're doing M&A. And so for me, it was a natural transition to banking. Uh, both spaces are highly regulated. And so there's a commonality there. In fact, the utility space is more regulated than the in terms of regulations on the books than the banking sector. And so we made a nice transition into doing this. But I will tell you, and the reason for this being on the show today is to really talk about what's become a passion of mine, Bakari, which is when we think about wealth and wealth creation, there's nothing more important than being sure it passes to the next generation. And as we talked about the wealth gap between African-Americans and Caucasians, what I realize is we find a shortage happening in ensuring that all families have a will healthcare directive and power of attorney. CNBC just published, I think on February the 6th, that it's a state of emergency in the black community that the will rate is at only 30%, meaning only three out of 10 individuals have a will. And so that's the reason that we're here. That's kind of a synopsis of my arc in terms of where I'm sitting in the seat today, Bakari. And again, looking forward to talking about this more. Well, thank you for coming on. I mean, this is, this is necessary. Let's talk about banking black. Talk about your career in banking and why did you choose to lead a black bank? Well, I would tell you, it, this bank is actually in our family. Uh, my cousin, actually Don Davis, who was a music producer and had a wonderful record in the music industry, uh, bought this bank some 42 years ago in 1980, coming out of his music career where he was a producer here in Detroit. Um, and he, he ran this business successfully for 34 years. It was in our family and it just created an opportunity for us to look after the family asset. But what was really more important to me is I moved from a career to where I was probably having a lot more impact dollar wise in corporate America was really the opportunity to have an impact really locally and impacting African-Americans as we talk about this whole issue of wealth. And so, as we know, the African-American banking sector is very small. It's less than 20 of us out of over right at 5,000 banks working with individuals like Jared Lodeholt and others. We've been able to really elevate this topic to the national stage and really get some important legislation passed over the last couple of years that we're hopeful that will set the stage for us impacting communities in ways we hadn't seen before, Bakari. What are some of the challenges of minority-owned banks and, and how have programs like Emergency Capital Investment Program that we're seeing now from the Treasury Department addressing long-standing issues like patient equity, capital, and minority banks? 
Well, you said it all, Bakari. I can just only add to your question, which was really, in my opinion, the statement of what we've been working on over the last three to four years was demonstrating that having equity allows us to grow. And so I worked on that as chairman of the National Bankers Association for two years, Wells Fargo, prior to George Floyd's murder in March of 2020, announced that they were going to put aside $50 million to invest specifically in African-American banks. We were a recipient of some of those funds. But after George Floyd's murder, it was very evident that we needed to have more happen in this space. And so it allowed for the precipitation of other banks like Bank of America, Chase, um, Citibank, and others to continue to look at making equity investments. And if you look at the balance sheets of all of these banks in consolidation today, you would see almost a sharp step function growth that has taken place over the last couple of years because of that interest and bringing equity capital to the equation. Now, the challenge we have is getting ready to figure out how to really deploy that. As you just mentioned, the legislation that was passed, ESIP, uh, we're seeing, I think, a little bit shy of probably $800 million that will come specifically to African-American banks. We're going to have to basically figure out how to deploy that. What that means to your listening audience uh, really is that you take that $800 million and you multiply it times 10, that's the effect that we'll be able to have in this banking sector, which will be a, basically an $8 billion impact into the communities that we care about and serve. So uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do in front of us, Bakari. The point is what you just described, this will be patient capital over 10-year horizon uh, through ESIP and along with what we have also from those GSIBs that came in a little bit earlier. So our banks are well positioned to be able to serve the community. We're just going to have to do it efficiently going forward. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Why do black banks still matter? Well, Bakari, the studies show, and I think you know across any sector, if we do the secret shopper model, we know that we get different outcomes. It, we, it shows up in uh, synopsis and anecdotes like the appraisal story that we've seen recently where someone get a house appraised, they take all of the paintings out and have someone appraise it, and it's $200,000 more, $100,000 more. That's just a reality of what we see in America. I don't think we're gonna change that overnight. Yes, we'd like to talk about it and push, push for that change, but the reality is individuals who have come to African-American banks, the studies of the FDIC and Federal Reserve show that they have a higher propensity for success. They have a higher propensity for getting the additional service and help to get to that success. And so that data is documented. And so it, it demonstrates that there is certainly a need for uh, African-American banks and to have a really a broader spectrum to reach across going forward. For folks listening who want to ensure that black banks are still here for the next 100 years, what are five things they should do? Uh, first of all, I would tell you, I have a simple uh, a metaphor here. I don't need all of your money. I need some of your money. 
Hmm. Secondly, I'd love to be able to do business with you. Third, I would tell you, we hope that we can be a beacon in the communities where we serve in such a manner that someone can see Kenneth Kelly sitting in the seat who grew up in Eufaula, Alabama, uh, on Gamage Road, uh, went to Rebecca Coma for elementary school that is now closed in rural black uh, uh, Alabama, so to speak, could be successful and sit in a seat that their child could do it too. And, and I would tell you, from my perspective, there are very few places where you can see African-American CEOs dealing with very complex issues. The banking sector is one of those. And so we hope that our bank can be a beacon of hope, not just for our sake, but for many of the kids who look up to uh, us as role models. Well, that's I mean, that's what we need to hear more of. Let's talk about your book, which is one of the reasons that we're here today and one of the reasons that I'm so excited about talking to you. Uh, talk to us about Prepare Before I Let Go and the estate planning platform you're helping to lead uh, my legacy items. Talk about what those are. Yeah, certainly. So again, as I, I shared, we talk about the wealth gap, but what I've seen is a lot of wealth erodes. In fact, there are studies that show that basically uh, when someone passes, and in particularly wealthy individuals, without a will, they basically lose up to about four. 40 to 45% is lost through the process of legal debates. Um, it's lost through the process of, you know, infighting, et cetera. And that doesn't even talk about the emotional cost of the fractured relationship, Bakari. So what I wanted to do with this book was really to tell a lot of stories in metaphoric ways that people could relate to, but also do it at the famous level and also for those everyday Americans. And so in this book, I'll be candid. I wrote about everybody but Aretha Franklin because it was important to me to know that as a banking leader, I didn't want anyone to assume I knew anything about her business. So all of the cases are outside of Detroit, but I focused on individuals we know well from a public pr perspective. And that was Prince, James Brown, whose estate just settled after 15 years of his death. In oh, we know that we know that in South Carolina real well. That man died with no, with no will, but had everybody and their mama and their baby mama and their daughter and college and HBCU trying to get a, a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. 12 lawsuits, Bakari. You know what that means. That's 24 different council representatives. And we're not talking about how deep that is in the 12 lawsuits that took place there. So they sat at his table and feast to be candid with you. We wrote about a Chad Bozeman, John Singleton, a hero virus who did Boys in the Hood. Uh, the, the list goes on. Stuart Scott, um, Amy Winehouse, a little cross-pollination there to tell the story that this is what could happen to your family if you don't prepare before you leave here. And so I also included a lot of everyday common stories, Bakari, to tell stories that in a way that we could relate to. For instance, the school teacher who worked all of her life, paid for a house, had two kids, died without a will. By the time the kids get what is left of it, they get about $10,000. The equivalent of that is that house is turned, flipped, and sold for almost $200,000. So her, her kids missed out on the upside potential of having that house through outright ownership. I tell a little bit about my own story and how we dealt with uh, the death of my mom. And she actually laid on her deathbed, what I would consider twice, when we didn't have a will and how I dealt with the stresses of, it was not important to deal with that stuff at that time when she was dying. She actually came back out of that. But during the second bout, uh, we ended up getting a will in place and getting right of survivorships on land, et cetera, in such a way that when she passed in less than six months, that all was in order. And so that story is in the book. But we also tell a great story that I think is a metaphor for why we wrote the book. Osceola McCarthy, uh, a lady out of Mississippi who was a, known as a washerwoman, she basically gave $150,000 roughly to the University of Southern Mississippi for African-Americans to have scholarships. So inspiring, President Clinton recognized her in the 1990s. Others created more endowment that fully endowed her scholarship 
And so she was able to do something that just demonstrated what happens when we put our minds to making something happen, which was, again, as a washerwoman, never owned a car, Bakari, but she was able to, to deliver $150,000 to a university that creates a perpetual endowment for African-Americans to be scholars at the University of Southern Mississippi. That potential is in all of us. And that's the latter part of my book. We talk about not just what we leave as possessions, but our philosophies, my philosophy on giving, why I ended up creating an endowment before I even had my own kids college funded. You know, those are the kinds of lessons that we want people to think about and prepare before I let it go. As I conclude, let me say that as you brought up my legacy items, not only did I want to just be an author, I wanted to have a platform to individuals could take what knowledge is in the book and execute it. So we created a technology platform and I call it an electronic safe deposit box where a family, husband and wife can create a will, a healthcare directive and a power of attorney all for $49.95 per year. We wanted to democratize this. And I know there are many of attorneys who would say, there's no way you could do that because it is expensive, but we are uh, compliant in all 50 states. And I want to democratize this so there's no excuse for a family not having a will. And if your affairs are sophisticated, you could basically take and print this document out and take it to your attorney if you want to have that done. But the point is we wanted to make the knowledge accessible and very affordable so individuals can take care of this. And let me give a couple of examples of the sophistication of the tool. You can put your home, your home address. Um, if your home is in Zillow, which most of us are probably familiar with, it will extract that data directly from Zillow and keep it real time. So if you pass away five years from now, it'll show you the exact value of that house before you even go to sell it. So your executor or whomever you leave in charge will have access to that. All of your bank accounts can be extracted through APIs very safely. So all of it is stored there. You can upload things such as unique cars you may have or shotguns or furs or heirlooms you've received from others and upload it. So it's a great way of having accounting of all of your affairs that you want identified and who you want to have it electronically done. What we've seen a lot of times, especially in families, is that the first one that can get to the house, they get to pick up the heirlooms that they want before others can sometimes get to the house. This creates a process that that's eliminated and makes it safe for a family to be here that all of those affairs are taken care of. And Bakari, I heard you talk about the family land there in Abbeville in a previous uh, broadcast. And so it's an opportunity to do that. I will tell you, I can raise both of my hands, Bakari. On both sides of the family, we have air property. It is so unfortunate because it has been a devastation to the African-American, I would say, capital in, in, South, in the South in particular. And so this is an issue we need to talk about more. This land ownership issue of letting them figure it out, you know, as I move on, is unfortunate. And it leaves our families in turmoil a lot of times, even when the value of it isn't great. It just creates and fractures family relationships. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? 
the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Where'd your passion for estate planning come from? And why do we see so many black folks not properly plan to protect their legacy? I mean, you mentioned some famous folk, they even famous folk that knew they were dying that still didn't have this plan in place. I mean, what, what are we missing? And is it something that needs to be taught in schools at an elementary, middle, high school? What, what's going I, on? It, it, very fundamental, Bakari. You are spot on. I would tell you it's our own mortality. I, I say, this is what I acquired, the saying I acquired in the midst of writing this book. We all know we're going to die. We just don't behave like we're going to die. And the reality is, it took me some time, even upon deciding to write this book, to come to consequences with my own mortality, because we always think, oh, that's another day. I have time for that. So part of my research and, and dealing with that and even going through this process, I went to, funeral, to a funeral home did the whole tour. And mind you, I had buried two parents. And, and so when you do that, you're in an emotional state. You have to recognize that. But when I went, when I didn't have business to do, I had it from a completely different view. I even went to see what would happen to my body in the whole process upon my death so that I could have and relate to that, Bakari. And so I think it's a topic that has been taboo in our culture. We have to be willing to talk about our own mortality. And I think that put things in perspective in such a way when you think about your loved ones, what do you want to leave? And the way we wrote my legacy items, there are three words that hopefully explains why and what they are in terms of our guiding principles. The first is peace. When we leave here, we should hopefully leave in peace and not create turmoil. The second one is love, love for those family members that we just talked about. And the, the last one is legacy. What is your legacy going to be? And it doesn't matter if you make $50,000 a year or $5 million a year. In some form or fashion, you will leave a legacy of possessions and a legacy associated with your philosophies. And so my legacy items, along with the book, Vacation Vehicle, so that we could begin comfortably talking about this topic going forward. For someone listening that hasn't done anything to protect their legacies for their families, where do they get started? What are five things they must do in order to ensure that when they transition and go up yonder, their families aren't just left with a funeral bill? Well, I, I would tell you, Bakari, I may not get to all five, but I'll tell you what's really important. One is, you know, coming to terms with your own mortality. It's a real issue. Again, we know we're going to die. We just don't behave like we're going to die. Once you do that, I think you need to become a little bit educated on what is needed. The book itself will be a great resource in telling all those metaphorical stories to understand how important this is to you and most importantly to your family that will be left behind. And then the resource I would tell you in my legacy items is an easy platform. You can do it in your own quiet time, at home, download, um, upload the data that you need to upload in such a way you need to handle that. It is unfortunate that I would say that we see so many of our individuals have to have individuals to help them be buried. Um, that's a financial, wellness issue in our community. We've seen it with public individuals and many private. I've had conversations with funeral directors. We need to begin to take care of those affairs as opposed to ensuring that our families are left with the bill, as you just stated. I've talked to, to Bishop um, Jakes about this in, on another call. This is an issue that is really prevalent in the African-American community that 
our families aren't prepared to even sometimes bury us. And so we think everyone can take on the responsibility of moving forward and ensuring that their family can take care of their affairs upon they're leaving this earth, but most importantly, what I think is important is being sure where you can take care of your families beyond you being here. I will tell you two other things that's important, Bakari, regarding this issue. We have seen because of our lack or our inability to have these kinds of conversations, individuals who are typically, and I, I write about this in the book, in a second marriage, it becomes really complex and very complicated. We have seen the first wife still be on paperwork related to insurance, which means the first wife is entitled to it. Uh, we have seen instances where the second wife who has been married to an individual for a long period of time may not be on the paperwork associated with receiving the pension. And so when the person dies, it may have worked for 40 years, uh, that pension and that value, that wealth, let me call it that, is lost. And so this is a very important topic to talk about, Bakari. And so to your point of five points, uh, we could talk about this probably for another hour, but the point I'm making is I think all of us as individuals need to engage. One final topic on this that I learned in this process, my kids, when they turned 18, they became official adults. What that really means is as a parent, even though they are, quote, living under my house while they're in college and I'm paying some of their bills, uh, the reality is if they're incapacitated and can't speak on their behalf um, in a hospital for whatever reason, I may not have the right, depending on the state, to go and say I want them resuscitated or I want certain things done with them. We need to know that as a culture. The last thing we need to do is be sure that the last thing we want to have happen to a family is to be in that position where they can't even speak for their own child. So your child needs a living will. So it's never too early to start this process. I have successfully had that conversation with both of my kids. One is 20, who's a junior at FAMU, and we have her under a healthcare directive, also known as a living will. My son's a freshman at the University of Alabama, and we've had the conversation, but I've got to get him to sign and say what he wants done. And so that's important. And so it's another aspect of this that I believe we need to continue to educate your community and, and our community on. Bacardi. Where can listeners buy the book and how can they find the My Legacy Items platform? Uh, we, we'll make that very simple. The The book can be purchased at Before I Let Go. That's just like you've heard the song. Before I Let Go. Before Exactly. Exactly. And then the, the My Legacy Items is associated with that site also, but you could go to mylegacyitems.com. And I named it that for a reason, so that when you say that name, you think about your own legacy because we all will have a legacy. Man, this has been a dope show, man. Kenneth, I know we, we covered a lot of ground in 22 minutes, 23 minutes. I mean, this is just a lot of information that people need. And, and let me just ask this, my final question. Sure. Uh, what role, if any, should black banks and black financial advisors be playing with all of this? And how, how do you connect those dots between your passion for estate planning and your passion well, for banking? Well, Bakari, we're in the midst of doing that. Um, th this is a financial issue, as you we just talked about. I mean, if your child's incapacitated in the hospital and you have no right, there are financial consequences that will come with that, right? And so it impacts all of us. This is something that we are starting to talk about in the banking sector. I've got a couple of banks that are interested in even using this platform for their employees as a benefit to them because I had one banker to say they had a custodian to pass away without a will in a small town. And guess what? That impact falls back upon that bank. So based on those relationships. So I would tell you, this is something that we as a community culturally and particularly the African-American community need to lean into. I was quoted in Ebony on the 16th of February on this topic. It is of crisis proportion when the African-American community will rate is at only 30 percent. 
Um, so that's seven out of 10 are uncovered right now, regardless of your age, you need to have a will in place. And so I appreciate you allowing me to come on your podcast and, and reach your audience, Bakari, and talking about this. And I think we just got to continue to do more of that. Man, go out and buy the book, man. Before I let go, get your get your get your life in order, order your steps. Thank you, Kenneth Kelly, Kelly for joining us on the Bakari Sellers podcast. I've learned a lot myself, so let me get let me get on the ball and do some things better. Let's make it happen, Bakari. Look forward to talking to you and being back with you soon. All right, peace, my brother. Take care. All right, All right bye now. Bye-bye.